turn uh, to the Word of God. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for uh, Thy goodness. We thank Thee for who Thou art uh, to us. We rejoice in Thy mercy and in Thy love, in Thy grace. No God, this morning, uh, we thank Thee that Thou art a God of truth. We rejoice that we can depend upon Thee, and that Thou art not like those in the world, for Thou art a God who cannot lie. And Father, this morning, as our attention is drawn really to that great truth, that our God cannot lie, and we pray, Father, Thou would apply it to us. May we rejoice that we serve a living God who is pure, and one who is holy. And Father, we pray that Thou would be pleased to meet with us this morning. We do remember the Sunday school downstairs. Bless there, we pray, as the younger generation are taught the things of God. Bless all who are involved in that work too, we ask. And Father, may Thy hand of blessing be upon them too today, we ask. And we pray, Father, that Thou would close us in with Thyself now. Bless Thy word to us. And we ask and we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I'm going to uh, turn uh, to uh, some passages of Scripture. Uh, firstly, Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter 3. Uh, we've turned to this passage on a number of occasions, and we'll, we'll turn again uh, to it. Second Timothy chapter 3. <coughs> And we'll read from the verse 14 down to the end of verse 17. And Paul says to Timothy here, verse 14, 2 Timothy 3, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, and knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Then I want to uh, turn to Psalm 117. Psalm 117, there are a number of passages we could uh, turn to this morning, but we will be referencing a number of verses uh, throughout the message. Uh, but we'll turn to Psalm 117 at this point. It's a short a psalm, two verses, and it says, O praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. The truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. In our studies on the Word of God itself, we have laid out various fundamental doctrines that form what our view of the Word of God, of Scripture, ought to be. And again, the inspiration of Scripture, the divine origin of Scripture, is the foundation, really, for all of this. When we think about the sufficiency of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of God's Word, and the fact that it came not from man but from God, 
is that great foundation stone when we consider the Scriptures of truth. And building then upon these thoughts and those other doctrines, authority, sufficiency, clarity, we must then consider the truthfulness of the contents of Scripture. Is Scripture true? Is it without error? Can it be trusted? And the simple and obvious answer is, because God's Word is inspired, because it came from God, it is therefore without error and can be trusted. I suppose I could stop there and say amen and sit down, because we've dealt uh, with the subject this morning. God's Word is true. It is without error, because God is true. Uh, But uh, we will uh, give some depth uh, to that this morning. The Westminster uh, Confession of Faith uh, speaks of uh, the Word of God, and in section 5 of chapter 1, chapter 1 being dedicated uh, to the Word of God itself, the Westminster Divine said that we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, or arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth, and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word of God in our hearts. And it is by the work of the Spirit, it is by faith, that we believe and are persuaded that the Word of God truly is God's Word, and truly is infallible, inerrant, and has divine authority. In chapter 9, or section 9, And the divines say again, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And this morning we come to what is known as the inerrancy of Scripture. Or perhaps uh, we could refer it uh, as the truthfulness of Scripture, or combining those two together, the inerrant veracity of Scripture. It is without error, and it is absolutely true. And of course, this again is an important doctrine. We believe God's Word to be God's Word. We believe it has authority. We believe it is sufficient. And therefore, to have authority and to be sufficient, God's Word must be without error. Because if there was an error found within it, can it be trusted? Can we rest upon it? Can we have that assurance that God's Word is true? Whatever is in it will come to pass. Our salvation and that we, are, that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, we found the way of salvation. We were made wise to the way of salvation through the Word of God. As Timothy was told by Paul, the Holy Scriptures make one wise unto salvation. And therefore, when we think of the Word of God and its importance, its essential nature regarding our salvation. What if it cannot be trusted? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, God's Word says. But what if the Word of God itself cannot be trusted? Can that statement 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, be trusted. When we think of 1 Corinthians 15 and our resurrection and the great victory of Christ, if God's Word cannot be trusted, should we truly cast our hope upon Christ? Should we truly rejoice that we will be resurrected because Christ was resurrected? Can we rejoice that He has victory over the grave and over sin and over the devil? Well, we can't because we're trusting something that is unstable, something filled with error, even one or two errors. And therefore, our sure hope that we have, the sure foundation we have, has cracks and is crumbling. But praise God, Scripture is sure. Scripture is true. I remember many years ago in our home church in Dungannon in Northern Ireland, uh, the building there was built, I think it was open 1972 or thereabouts, and 30 years later they were talking about erecting a new building, one of the reasons being that at that time in the 70s, the Free Presbyterian Church, certainly uh, the denomination was quite young at that time, but the church itself uh, was uh, quite a young church. Uh, there wasn't a lot of resources, there wasn't a lot of money, and therefore many of the churches built at that time were constructed uh, with cheaper materials. Uh, they were not constructed with great quality. And if you went into the upper room at the church and you opened the door that took you into where the water tank was, you could see uh, the steel uh, that held uh, the building, and you could see it beginning to bend and beginning to buckle. And of course, eventually a new church was opened over 10 years ago now. Uh, but that was one of the problems. There was an issue with the materials. There was an issue with the building itself. And how many buildings are like that? That as ether is aging, there are problems that need to be fixed and problems that need to be sorted. And when we look at the Word of God, the Word of God, thousands of years old, it's perfect. There is no error. It is all truth. It is not buckling. When we think of the age, when we think of the change in society, there is no buckling. There is no cracking. There is no crumbling. It stands sure. And when we think of the inerrancy of Scripture and the veracity of Scripture, then uh, that supports uh, this truth that the Word of God is not crumbling. It is sure. It is sure. The Heidelberg Catechism in question 21 asks the question, what is true faith? And it answers, the true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. And what a confidence that is. Our faith is built on God's Word. It's accepting what God has revealed in His Word as true, as true. When we think of these two terms, inerrancy and veracity, what do they mean? Well, inerrancy means without error, uh, and veracity refers to a truthfulness, a conformity to truth, a conformity uh, to uh, that which is not a lie. And by applying these terms to Scripture, we mean that Scripture does not declare anything that is contrary to what is real what is true, and everything that Scripture does contain is faithful and accurate because it is the divinely inspired Word of God. 
Dr. Alan Kern said of inerrancy that you, the unique quality of Scripture by which it was given to God, to His chosen penmen in a state that was free from all error of every kind, in stating that the autographs, the original uh, writing of the Scripture, it was completely errorless. We do not contend that God continued the miracle in the copying of the original manuscripts uh, throughout history. However, He did providentially preserve His Word in purity. And so, when we think of the original manuscripts, the original writing, the original autograph of Scripture, when it was written by the Apostle Paul, for example, it was without error. But then it was copied, and copied again, and copied again, and copied again, and translated and translated throughout many languages, compiled. We can think of the underlying text of the authorized version, that text being compiled and being translated not only into English, uh, but into other languages as well. And we believe that God providentially preserved His Word in purity, guarding it by the methods of transcription employed by the Jews, looking back at the Old Testament, and by the sheer number of copies made of the New Testament manuscripts. Now, we're on the borderline here of what is known as textual criticism, looking at the manuscripts, looking at the various documents. I remember doing this at college, and, well, I'm not sure I was any the wiser uh, to a lot of what was being said. Uh, it is very complex, uh, but uh, when we uh, consider this, we simply, I think, simply unless we have an interest in delving deep into that, and if you do, then go ahead. But I think when we consider the original was errorless, God has providentially preserved it, we believe that, and that is sufficient uh, for us. Of course, there is a great depth here. We may or may not uh, touch on other things concerning that, uh, but the Word of God, the Word of God we have here this morning has been providentially preserved. It is inerrant. It is, it is true. The inerrant, uh, that term, inerrancy, means the same as the older term, infallibility. We talk about the infallible Word of God, the inerrant Word of God. And the two terms are similar. One is uh, more modern, one is older, and both refer to a Word of God that is free from error. Whatever that error, whether that error is doctrine or history, these terms mean that Scripture cannot fall short of being true. And when we consider this doctrine, the inerrancy of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, there is no middle ground. You cannot say that uh, the Bible is true and untrue. It's either true in everything, it is either inerrant or it is not. It can't be one or the other or it can't be both. It has to be one or the other. And therefore, what you believe in this subject is of vital importance to your understanding of Scripture and to your walk with God, because if Scripture is not inerrant, then what part can be trusted? And because Scripture teaches us obedience to God, how to live for Him, teaches us how to cast our faith upon Christ for salvation, then how can an error-filled Scripture achieve that purpose? When we think of the inerrancy of Scripture, Scripture itself can be trusted without the authority of the Pope, without the stamp of a religious approval, but we need the light of the Spirit to illuminate the truth therein. 
When we think of the inerrant veracity of Scripture, that does not mean that the Bible was penned by perfect people, but rather that a perfect God inspired men to write a word as they wrote down that word, a word that was free from error. And part of that work of inspiration was the protection of the writing of Scripture from error and contradictions. One of the issues, I think, with the Apocrypha, those uninspired books, and I think we'll come to that when we consider the canon of Scripture, one of the issues is that uh, there are things in there, I believe, praying for the dead, other things that are not found in Scripture. So, therefore, these books contain things that are not supported by the rest of Scripture. Therefore, there's a contradiction, a contradiction. But the Word of God was protected from contradictions. We know the writers of Scripture were not perfect men, David, Moses, for example, but in the writing of Scripture, they experienced a divine protection. Scripture is not uh, written in the sense of uh, being perfect grammatically or whatever that is. That's not what inerrancy means. Inerrancy means that everything that Scripture says is without error. It is true. And when we consider this doctrine, at stake in this doctrine is the truthfulness of God's Word. The truthfulness of God's Word. I think most people here this morning, if I were to say, put your hand up if you don't believe this doctrine, or put your hand up if you do believe this doctrine, uh, you'll answer affirmative. I don't think anyone here is going to challenge uh, me on this particular matter, the truthfulness of God's Word and the inerrancy of God's Word. I think uh, most of us uh, if not all of us, certainly believe this doctrine. And it's important that we do so. It's important that we do so. So, I want us to consider the inerrant veracity of Scripture. I have several points, but we'll only consider the first this morning, and it is the biblical foundation of the inerrancy of Scripture, the biblical foundation. And it is important to lay that biblical foundation. Yes, we believe it. We believe Scripture is true, but what does Scripture actually say about this matter? Well, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, we've considered that already. He said to Timothy that Scripture is, <coughs> is given by inspiration of God, and therefore its existence, its existence is God's own work through human authors by the inspiration and working of His Spirit. These written words then are the words that God has given the God who is true, and the God who is without error Himself. And when we think of the inerrancy of Scripture then, the integrity of the divine author we're considering. The integrity of the divine author must never be challenged or compromised by man because He is the pure and holy God. And if we were to say, well, Scripture has an error, there's something here that is off, there's something here that is wrong, there's this particular tribe mentioned in the Word of God, and that tribe is, is a work of fiction. It's made up. It's not true. But the Word of God says that it is. It's not true. All Scripture, all Scripture is true, and the integrity of the divine author here is in view. Who are we to question the holy, pure, righteous God of heaven? And when we question the truthfulness of His Word, then that is what we are doing. We are challenging His authority. We are challenging His glorious attributes and perfections. Oh, how men do that. 
how men will look at the Word of God and say, that's not what it means. It means this, and they're off on their interpretation. How they will take the Word of God and twist Scripture and ignore the message of Scripture to proclaim their own truth, or what they think is truth, or truth according to them. Dear believer, let us see this Word as that which is true, that which is inerrant, and let it be, as we'll see in a moment, the standard by which we live. But firstly here, Scripture teaches that God is truth. Scripture teaches that God is truth. The Word of God is true, and the Word of God originates with the one who is truth. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, in dealing with who God is, states the following, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those three words, their meaning is of vital importance, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. In His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And therefore, God is truth, and He is infinite in that truth. He is eternal in that truth. He is unchangeable in that truth. We know very well how humans are finite. Humans are changeable when it comes to truth. Politicians will say one thing, and then they'll say another thing, and businessmen and whoever it may be in this world will twist the truth or outright lie to achieve their ends. They change all the time. Can you trust someone? Well, it depends. Sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. Men change, but God is unchangeable in His truth. God is eternal in His truth. God is infinite in His truth. In Exodus 34, the verse 6, it says here, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. There in Exodus, God is declared as abundant in truth. In Psalm 117 that we read together, and what is that great phrase? The truth of the Lord endureth for a moment like the truth of men? No. The truth of the Lord endureth forever. There's no change. God, who is true, endures forever. God's truth, God's Word, endures forever. And that's a reason to praise the Lord, because He has given us that sure Word. In John 14, verse 6, what did the Savior say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is the truth. In Numbers, chapter 20, in Numbers 23, verse 19, it says there, God is not a man that He should lie. Lying being a characteristic of men, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. God is not a man that He should lie. And Scripture again is testifying God is true. God does not lie. God does not deceive. And these verses are of great significance because they teach that God and everything about God is truth. We live in an age of lies and deceitfulness. I think we always live in an age of lies and deceitfulness. But God is the opposite to that, because He cannot sin, He cannot lie, and He is a God that is true. In Titus 1 verse 2, the apostle said to Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God promised before the world began. And what does he insert? Which God? And he defines that God as a God 
that cannot lie. In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. A little phrase that cannot lie, but how important it is for us to know and believe and understand our God cannot lie. We can all lie. We may seek the Lord and the help of the Spirit to the best that we can to not tell lies and to always speak the truth. And as believers, we should be motivated by that, to glorify God by speaking the truth. But the reality is that we can lie, and we do lie. But our God cannot lie. It is impossible. It is impossible. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4 he is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. A God of truth and without iniquity. And this is all, I think, basic knowledge for us. We know that God is these things. But when we consider the inerrancy of Scripture, Scripture is given by a God who is these things. And therefore, the Scripture cannot lie because God cannot lie. God cannot divinely author a book that is filled with lies because he cannot lie. He cannot lie. In Psalm 11, in the verses, Psalm 111, verses 7 to 8, the works of his hands are verity, truth, and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and are done in truth and righteousness. How can these works be true? because they're real things. They're not appearances. They're not mirages. They're not a plain idea. God's works are things that are happening or things that have happened, things that are ongoing. We think of the work of creation. We think of the work of providence. We think of the miracles. We think of the judgments of God. All these things are true, and all these things are real. In John 17, verse 17, the Savior prayed, "'Sanctify them through thy truth.'" Thy word is truth. And the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one on whom we depend for salvation, said of his Father, Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. And therefore, if the word of God is not truth, even on one little point, how can the Savior say, thy word is truth? If God's word is not truth, Christ cannot be our Savior, for He is not perfect and He is not sinless. God is true to everything He's revealed in His word. There's no flaw. There's no corruption. He's true in the doctrines of the gospel. There are doctrines that we cannot fully comprehend. Can we fully explain the Trinity? Can we fully explain the virgin birth? Can we fully understand and explain how God can exist with our finite minds? These doctrines are deep and perhaps seem very complex and hard to comprehend, but they are not proof that Scripture is an error. God Himself is infinitely true, and therefore His Word, as I've said, is true. 
John chapter 8, verse 44 says, You're off your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. And the opposite to God is Satan. There is no truth in the devil. There is no truth in the evil one. He stands opposed to God, and he stands opposed to his word because there's no truth found in him. But yet God and all that flows from God is true. We should also mention the immutability, the unchangeable nature of God. And James tells us that, that God has no variableness, no shadow of turning. Scripture is unchangeable because it comes from a God who is unchanging. Man is changing. Man seeks to change the Word of God. We see that reflected daily in society. And if man was the author of Scripture, oh, what editing would take place? And what editing does take place when man seeks to look at Scripture and say, well, that can't be true, and that can't be right, and that cannot apply to this generation. It's out of date. It doesn't apply to us anymore. And man seeks to edit the inerrant and true Word of God. We see that reflected daily in society, but dear believer, we can depend upon it. Our salvation is founded upon an unchangeable word, not the changing words of man. And as Scripture is proven to be untrue, then that affects the very character of our God. That's how vital this subject is. Secondly, I want you to see that Scripture teaches that every word of God is pure. Scripture teaches that every word of God is pure. God is holy. God is true. And His words are pure words. Our time is moving on, and so we'll be quick in these last number of thoughts. But every word of God is pure. Psalm 12, verse 6 tells us the words of the Lord are pure words. A silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And Proverbs 30, verse 5 tells us every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. Oh, do we not desire purity when we think of the metals of this world as uh, we have silver mentioned in Psalm 12? The pure metal, something that is pure, something that is uncorrupted. I was saying earlier, uh, when there was uh, water here in the pulpit of sorting the water out, how at a church many, many years ago, uh, there was uh, a pulpit electron in the hall that wasn't used very much. It was at the back of the church. One Sunday it was used, and there was water used. Six months later, uh, it hadn't been used since, and I was coming to the pulpit, and there was the water and there was mold and all sorts of things in that water. It wasn't pure. I wasn't going to drink that water because it was not pure. What would it do if it was not pure? What if I'd drunk that water? Hate to think what would actually happen. In fact, I, looking at it made me feel ill. Never mind drinking it. It's not pure. The opposite to pure is that which is corrupt that which is corrupt. Dear believer, Scripture, as we've seen, every word of God is pure. It's holy, it's righteous, and it's necessary for us. The Lord is a shield, as the proverb says, 
Chapter 30, verse 5, a shield unto them that put their trust in him, who put their trust in the pure God, in the pure words of God. Notice here, thirdly, that Scripture teaches its own trustworthiness. Scripture teaches its own trustworthiness. What does the Savior say about Scripture? If we turn to John chapter 10 and the verse 35, John 10, the verse 35, and the Savior here is speaking. And he says, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and then he says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. We'll just take that phrase, the Scripture cannot be broken. And that word broken refers to being destroyed. The Scripture cannot be destroyed. And alongside the verses that state that God cannot lie, what is that message that we glean from Scripture? It can be trusted. It is true. It cannot be destroyed. It can then be depended upon. If we look at the promises of God in Scripture, the promise of a Messiah, the promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah, and many, many more promises. Some of these things looked absolutely impossible. How can God promise something that will come to pass centuries later? We all know how difficult it is sometimes to promise things. But because of His power, because He is a true God, upon whose word can be trusted, these things are true. These things are true. There are difficult things in Scripture, not merely to understand, but rather to acknowledge. The reality of sin, the sinful nature in our lives. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to examine ourselves. Is that not a difficult thing? The sins that creep into our lives and the life of the church, we see that in Corinth as well in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Of course, when faced with our sin, it is like that sharp knife, that sharp sword going into us. But in Acts chapter 20, uh, the apostle speaks to the elders of Ephesus, and he says, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not spurring the flock. Yes, that is a difficult thing. There are those that will come, and they will seek to devour the flock. Not literal wolves, but spiritual wolves. Paul is warning, and that's a difficult thing to experience. But yet, Paul is warning about this. Is that not somewhat acceptable to what he says in the next verse? Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It's one thing from those outside the church to cause havoc. It's another thing for those inside the church, those who are loved ones, those who are family, those who are friends, those uh, who have spent years beside you worshiping God together to then have this happen. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. How difficult a thing that is to comprehend, that there would be those among the brethren in the church who would cause havoc in such a way and seek to draw disciples after them. Oh, Paul, can this not be true? How can this be true? 
Well, it is because Scripture can be trusted. Dear believer, there are difficult things in Scripture for us to acknowledge. Our sin, our feelings, the attacks upon the church of Christ, just to name a few. But Scripture is trustworthy because it is the inerrant and true Word of God. And therefore, we should trust the Word, no matter how difficult to accept it may be. We can think of the difficulty and the hardship of sorrow. There's a time to be born, a time to die for each one of us. And of course, that never happens according to how we would like. It happens according to God's will, and how difficult that can be to face. But yet the Lord gives comfort. The Lord gives comfort, but His Word is trustworthy. His Word is trustworthy. Notice as well here that Scripture teaches that it is the standard of truth. Scripture teaches that it is the standard of truth. Oh, the compromising liberal won't like this, but Scripture is the standard of truth. In Matthew 22, verse 29, the Savior said, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. He's speaking to the Sadducees, that they are making mistakes. They are in error. Why? According to what standard? The only standard of truth, the Word of God, but according to the truth of the Sadducees, how they acted and how they thought they were not in error, but judged by the Word of God, they were found to be in error. And therefore, the Word of God teaches us by the words of Christ that it is the standard of truth. My ideas, your ideas, the ideas of anyone else, if they are not founded in Scripture, are mere ideas and are not the standard of truth. Scripture is the standard of truth. In Matthew 5, verse 18, the Savior said, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, the smallest uh, letters, as it were, the smallest strokes in the Hebrew alphabet, little insignificant things, we could say, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Why? Because they're important. Everything in Scripture is important. Attention must be paid to the small details because Scripture is the standard of truth. Dear believer, is Scripture the standard of truth for you? Or do you, as it were, go through the Word of God and pick and choose what you like? I remember hearing the story years ago. I don't know if it's true. Uh, certainly, if you listen to many preachers in other denominations who question the inerrancy of Scripture and the truth of Scripture, it likely is true. Uh, but there was a minister who went to visit a lady one time, and he forgot his Bible. It was obviously the days before you had it on your phone. And he had no Bible. He borrowed hers, and he noticed that there were pages missing and pages blacked out, whatever it was. And he asked the question, what happened to your Bible? And she said that every time he cast doubt upon something in Scripture, she blacked it out. And there were pages and pages that had been blacked out or removed because he had took the Word of God and basically shredded it. 
but it is the standard of truth. It is the standard of truth. And then finally, Scripture teaches that it is a sure foundation, a sure foundation. In light of what we've considered here, we see that Scripture testifies to its own inerrancy, primarily because our God is a God of truth, and the Scripture is the word of a God who cannot lie. Thomas Boston, the Scottish preacher, Scottish Puritan, to give him that title, said that the truth of God is an immovable rock upon which we may safely venture our salvation. An immovable rock. Psalm 19 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's firm. It builds up. That's what the word sure means. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It builds up. It's something that is permanent. Oh, how we trust the arm of flesh, the wisdom of men. But yet all these things will fail. God's Word is that sure foundation. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. The psalmist answering those that reproach him simply says, I trust in thy word. Why? Because it's sure it's immovable. This brings us back, I believe, to something we've mentioned in the past, the wise and the foolish man of Christ's parable. They're in Matthew 7. And Christ is teaching that the wise man that built his house upon the rock is like those that build upon the teachings of Christ. We see the blessedness of that. The storm came, and the house stood firm. And, dear believer, that rock that he was built upon as Christ says, is the truth of God, the sayings of Christ, the Word of Christ, the inerrant Word of God. And we are to build upon it because it can be trusted, and it is a sure foundation for it. The ideas of men, the traditions of men, are a sandy foundation, a sandy foundation. The Word of God is a sure foundation. Whether that is to comfort us, whether that is to point us to Christ for salvation, whether that is to point out our sin and convict us, the Word of God is sure. The Word of God is sure. Thank God that our faith is fixed upon the Word of the living God. But in closing, let me say this. There are many practical implications that we'll consider next time. We're going to consider a little bit of history. We're going to consider some of the oppositions to this doctrine and then some of the practical implications. Uh, but let me mention this one in closing. The inerrancy of Scripture ought to be a motivation for us in evangelizing the lost with the gospel of Christ. Why is that? <laughs> Quite simply, Scripture is true. Because God's Word is true. That ought to motivate us to, as it were, proclaim the Word, get the Word of God out into this world because Scripture is true, because hell is real, because sin is real, because hell is that final destination for the unrepented sinner, because all the judgment and all the wrath that is recorded in Scripture as being upon the sinner will happen to every sinner. And therefore, men need to hear the truth of God to make them wise unto salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. So therefore, based on the fact that Scripture is true, should that not motivate us to go out and to be a witness for Christ, to rest upon His inerrant Word? Oh, when you talk to men, how they'll cast doubt on Scripture, how they'll question the Word of God, how they'll say that if you consider a loving God 
and this wicked world. How can the two exist? If God is love, how can these terrible things happen in this world? I had a man speak to me one time about his, about his granddaughter and the medical issues that she had, among other things. And he looked and he worked in a prison, and he saw the worst of society, the worst sinners of society, those whom society say are sinners. Even by the standard of society, they would say they're sinners. And he looked at the vilest of men, the most wicked of men, men who've taken the lives of others. And he looked at his granddaughter and thought, how can there be a God? How can there be a loving God? Well, dear believer, we rest upon the inerrant Word of God. We believe it's true. We believe it's true. And of course, the sin that we see all these things that is a result of sin, all these problems are the result of man's sin. Man's sin. But without answering that question in great detail for the sake of time, simply rest on the Word of God. Rest on the inerrancy of Scripture. Believe it's true. Because as you go into the world with the gospel of Christ, you step forth on a sure foundation. A sure foundation. May the Lord bless His Word this morning, for His name's sake, let us pray. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word, Thy truth. What a blessing it is to us uh, to consider the inerrancy, the infallibility, the veracity of Thy Word. Oh, how privileged we are to have this inerrant Word in our own language. And Father, we pray that uh, we would believe that Thy truth is without error. We realize men have questioned the Word of God. We'll even consider that uh, on another occasion, but we rejoice that the testimony of Scripture is inerrancy and truthfulness. And Father, we pray today that we would be filled with that truth. We would desire that truth. We would desire to proclaim that truth to others because it is the truth of God. Oh, how the inerrancy of Scripture should motivate us to evangelize this world because we have the truth that the world needs. Father, we pray that Thou would apply Thy Word to our hearts. Bless us now and bless uh, the services today undertake for our brother, we ask. And may we have a blessed time worshiping Thee, our God. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.